Hey everybody, welcome back to This Week in Marvel, the official podcast of Marvel, and we got a special episode today. Uh, I'm Ben Morse, the Editorial Director of Marvel Digital Media, welcoming back Tom Brevoort to the show again. Tom? Hello. Been on so many times at this point, you might as well be the host. <laughs> Just about. <laughs> but we're talking about a very cool topic today. We're talking about the late Mark Grunewald, who are doing a whole week of coverage to devoted to over on Marvel.com. We've got various articles and podcasts and other things going on and tom as you know the keeper of mark <laughs> and someone who actually got to know mark i wanted to have you in here and you know kind of talk about his life and his career a little bit sure sure so i guess to start with what was your relationship like with mark i know you guys didn't overlap for too too long but you were here at the same time for well it was i mean it was it was about seven years total oh, wow. so it's it wasn't like a, it wasn't a small amount of time, it wasn't a small amount of time um, and I don't know that I would say that I was like one of Mark Grunewald's closest friends or even closest, uh, uh, you know, editorial people. Uh, there were plenty of other people that he was tighter with uh, than than with me. Um, <coughs> excuse me, we have to edit edit my coughing. Um, you know, I worked with Mark on a bunch of things over the years, uh, the Marvel Universe Handbook and uh, the. Uh, the amalgam, the first amalgam, DC right. Marvel crossover, and so forth. Uh, and Mark was, you know, was always around. He headed up uh, the assistant editor classes of that era, uh, and was sort of the self-proclaimed uh, morale officer of Marvel in those mm-hmm. days. So he was always he was always a presence, mm-hmm. and was always a, a you know a, like a figure. But um, you know, I can't at all say that I was especially. Uh, tight with him, you know. Apart from the fact that, in essence, uh, you know, I sit in his chair now mm-hmm. uh, because uh, had he not passed away when he did, almost certainly he would have been editing Avengers, mm-hmm. uh, and he would be editing all of the books that I edit now. Mm-hmm. I pretty much do what he did uh, years ago, mm-hmm. uh, just not as well. <laughs> That's up to interpretation. Um... I want to dig a little bit further back. What do you know about Mark Grunewald, the fan, like before he got into Marvel? I know he was heavy involved with the fanzines and stuff like that. What well, can you tell us about that? Um, you know, he was, a, he was a kid growing up in Wisconsin. Um, he, was a, he was a young comic book fan, and, uh, you know, there are, there are photos. Uh, when he passed, his, uh, his widow, Catherine, mm-hmm. uh, you know, took all, a whole bunch of, you know, photo albums and things and made sort of a tribute video um, that covers his life from end to end. And, you know, in the years since, I've posted that up on YouTube, although I had to swap out the music mm. because the music track was copyrighted mm. to somebody and couldn't, couldn't use it. Um, but there are, you, you, you see these photos from 1959, 1960, you know, when Mark is a tiny little kid and not only does he have a full superhero costume, he literally has the entire neighborhood dressed as the Justice League of America. That's amazing. Like, he's got them all. Who is Mark? <laughs> I honestly, 
the reason I didn't say it then yeah, a few seconds ago yeah, was I could not specifically okay. remember which costume uh, Mark was in. He did not have a mustache in those days, right. so it was tougher to pull him out of a, <laughs> of a lineup of guys in in cowls and masks. But like it was literally like an army of, of small children dressed up as all the DC superheroes, and they were the DC superheroes because the Marvel heroes did not yet exist. Mm. You know, Mark was always uh, a huge uh, fan of the classic DC. Sure, yeah, you can um, see it in a lot of. His you know, he was he was really almost more of a DC fan than a Marvel fan. Yeah. You get right down to it. Um, you know, but he was a Marvel fan. He had a letter printed very early on. And Fantastic Four 20. Wow. Um, talking about, you know, that he and his uh, circle of friends, you know, had established a Fantastic Four fan club in Wisconsin and so forth. Um, so that's, the I think, the earliest Marvel-printed Mark letter there is. Um, although there would be more in years to come. He would write to DC and Marvel and get things printed in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, and, you know, he did a lot of... A lot of typical uh, uh, fan things. He worked on fanzines and, uh, you know, wrote stuff and reviewed stuff and, uh, you know, all of that sort of thing. He kept a big, uh, I think it was almost like a, uh, uh, like a, a, an index card can full of, you know, data and information on all the, the characters. Um, you know that uh, again. Mostly, it was the DC characters, so it didn't come in handy terribly much when he was working at at Marvel. Uh, and in fact, he was a friend of uh, Dean Mullaney, who who started up Eclipse Comics back in the seventies and eighties. And Dean was more of a, a Marvel fan and a Marvel indexer. And when Mark came to work at Marvel, Dean gave Mark like all of his uh, reference material on. On the Marvel stuff, which you know Mark knew but didn't wasn't as obsessed with at least at that point, um, and so that that's kind of the earliest uh, beginnings of what would become the Marvel handbook was right. that mountain of that mountain of of, of yeah of info. That's awesome. Um, so once Mark got here, I know he had a close relationship with Denny O'Neill. Do you know anything about? how he kind of served as a mentor? Or I don't know a whole lot about that, honestly, although that's not too, too surprising. I, right. tend, to, I tend to think of it more as uh, uh, Tom DeFalco mm. uh, because he worked as Tom's assistant. Right. Um, and he was already on staff when Tom came on. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, Tom sort of famously says that uh, you know, he, was, he was hired in and, uh, you know, they told him, Jim Shooter or whomever told him, oh, yeah, Mark Greenwald is going to be your assistant. And he kind of said, I, I should be his assistant. Why, you know, why, why am I? Yeah, but, but uh, you know, they, they worked together. And then eventually, you know, Tom became first the executive editor, and then he became editor-in-chief, and Mark became the executive editor, and he was kind of his number two. Um, so I know there was a, a relationship there. I don't know a whole lot about, specifically about, Mark and Denny, other than, you know, I know Mark respected Denny as one of the great comic book writers of sure. the era and so forth. I just don't have any firsthand information as to what their relationship might have been like. Now, the thing some people don't know about Mark is he did a lot of writing, did a lot of editing, but he also did art. He was an artist. Yes. Um, why did why was that not his kind of full-time commitment? Well, I mean, he was he was good enough to do some professional work but he was not as good and not as facile at it as a lot of other people mm-hmm. uh, he had a lot of different uh, 
uh, interests and pursuits. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on top of all that stuff, uh, you know, he would he would perform. He would do. Uh, he and uh, pretty much the core of the Marvel Handbook team, which was him, uh, Mike Carlin, later of DC, mm-hmm. and Elliot Brown, mm-hmm. uh, did a public access show really? called Cheap Laughs. <laughs> uh, and they did something like eight episodes oh. of this, you know, home-baked, no-budget. And by no-budget, I mean, like, cheaper than, than this. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, a comedy show that aired on public access cable in oh. the in the 80s um you know so he could he could play guitar um you know he could do a, he would do he did a bunch of things and was interested in a bunch of things um so he was a good enough artist to to you know draw and lay out a story and in fact he drew or penciled or broke down hawkeye. the that first hawkeye yeah. limited series that he wrote yeah. um, but he wasn't so facile on it and he wasn't so fast at it i think mm-hmm that it was it was really viable and i don't know how interested he was mm. at just that portion of it i think that telling of the stories was more interesting to him than than the you know the the, the mechanics of drawing the stories yeah so speaking of some of the projects he worked on the first one i had down to write about is uh contest of champions the original contest of champions right the first real event comic some people would say sort of and yeah. and that was that was really not designed to be an event comic okay what that was that started life and i think it even started life before mark this was before mark even mm-hmm. touched it uh in 1980 uh they did a spider-man hulk treasury spider-man and the hulk at the summer olympics mm-hmm. uh, and then they were supposed to do a follow-up six months later marvel superheroes at the winter olympics mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the year the United States boycotted the uh, Winter Olympics. So that book never got finished. And so one of the things that happened when Tom uh, came on staff, Tom DeFalco and, and uh, Mark was already there, they inherited, they had all the pages half finished and half formed for this thing mm-hmm. sitting in a, a file. And Mark said, well, look, well, what if we took these and we added a bunch of new pages and we have a change a character or two? Um, but we could we could you know make this a series right now, and that was Contest of Champions. They yeah. took all the material that's specifically related to the Winter Olympics out of it, <laughs> but the basic story was still there, yeah. and and they you know they put that story together, and the idea was like everybody was in it, and that's yeah, why. That's the thing that really blows me away. It's, it's nowadays when we do a crossover, you know, it's always you get the big group shot where you show everyone there, but this was the first time really every character was in one place yeah yeah and then of course you know only like eight of them are really in the story yeah no. <laughs> everybody else gets to stand there and wait yeah <laughs> wait for uh you know blitzkrieg and and yeah. shamrock to finish yeah. uh, with their fights um and and that's you know that that, that story also famously has a, a a big mistake in it uh you know which is there you know there's two teams mm. the grandmaster has a team and the collector has a team and they're competing over the over the MacGuffin device, mm-hmm. and and you know at the end you know one team wins, mm-hmm. except that somewhere along the line, uh, uh, they Mark or whomever had lost track, mm-hmm. and in fact it's a draw. Yeah, um, and uh, uh, you know they they Tom and Mark noticed this uh, once the printed copies of the book came in. <laughs> Uh, and and got called into Jim's office because Jim saw this and was like, 
what the what the heck? This is yeah. a real. Uh, and 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 Mark immediately went, oh you noticed that. Are you noticed? Yeah yeah that that that's that's how we're going to get into the sequel. <laughs> and he completely extemporaneously went oh there'll be a follow up and then they ended up doing a sequel to it a couple of years later as <laughs> as a couple of Avengers annuals. Yeah right. But that was Mark's way of kind of getting out of the <laughs> the problem of of. Uh, you know, we, we screwed up. We, yeah. we, we made a mistake. So the official handbooks, which you worked on, obviously something near and dear to pretty much anyone who's a Marvel fan, you have to love the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. Is that an idea that Mark came up with? I mean, like you said, kind of a byproduct of what he'd been doing as a fan? Different people tell different versions of the story. And it's hard, you know, I, from, from this vantage point to, to, to discern who came up with what to some degree it was kind of like uh, a low-hanging idea because it was the it was the early 80s and it was the era where uh dungeons and dragons and other similar rpgs were starting to really gain traction particularly D &D. Mm -hmm. and D had all of these different books of here are all the monsters and creatures and things that you can find in a a dungeon it's all laid out pretty much just like a Marvel Universe handbook. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jim Shooter talks about uh, having gotten a, a, a book of uh, ships that was just like a, a, you know, a book cataloging all the different sorts of sailing vessels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was one of the things that was the inspiration for. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I, it's hard to say, but whether it was Mark's idea or not, or whether his idea was combined with other people's ideas as it went... Um, it was certainly his baby, yeah. uh, you know, from the from the beginning. And you can kind of see this. He would do things. There was a, a Spider-Man annual, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm not. Sure. I know he wrote it. I can't remember if he drew it or not. Uh, it was only about a four-page feature um, that ranked the strength levels of all the characters. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know you'd have six characters. Here were like the super heavyweights, and it yeah. was whatever the Hulk and Thor and Wonder Man, I think, yeah. and and they all had you know like a balloon talking about their prowess and how they ranked next to one another, mm-hmm. uh, and that generated a ton of response because fans wrote in, disagreeing with or arguing because their favorite character was not at a level that they thought they should be at, or you know what have you, uh, and that sort of thing was you know was one of the progenitors of the the handbook the idea that you could quantify all this stuff and have all this information in one place and you look back at the original handbook the 83 handbook um and again it's much closer to a dnd uh manual um there's some basic information but the amount of write-up that you would get later on it just, it just was not as as in-depth as even the later 85 right. handbooks, you know, pretty much every entry was a page long, whether it was Spider-Man or whether it was a guy that had fought Spider-Man once mm-hmm. in an issue of Marvel Team-Up. So, so you know, you had to fit everything that you wanted to know or needed to know into that space. Um, you know, there was also, you know, it was also kind of the birth of, uh, and it, this is a term I made up in one of Mark's assistant editor classes. Mm-hmm. Um, so nobody uses it but me, but I still <laughs> use it. Uh, and that is Einsteinification. Uh, you know, that was the birth of the Einsteinification of superpowers because in those handbooks, particularly the earliest ones, Mark and Elliot and whomever, Peter Sanderson uh, and all those guys would try to scientifically explain, explain how all the superpowers worked 
despite the fact that by definition they violate all scientific law <laughs> so you know really what they're trying to do is make all of this stuff plausible but this is where you get those and it, it, it vanished almost immediately thereafter these ideas like Cyclops is opening a portal to another dimension of kinetic energy and that's where the I-beams come from yeah um, yeah there's a lot of that there are a lot of a lot, a lot of superheroes open portals to other dimensions to do it's the a thing good, uh, it's a good standby they did um, and and uh, I remember a whole whole little uh, you know set of paragraphs on the particular electrostatic field that Spider-Man's body generated that allowed him to adhere to walls and ceilings and things, mm -hmm. um, which is you know on the one hand it's like oh that that that's you know particularly if you're a, a younger kid and you're investing in this it sounds really sounds good cool. it's complete nonsense yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work at all and any half qualified scientist would look at any of this stuff and kind of laugh at yeah. it but that's not really what it was there for it was there to make all this stuff you know seem more real and seem more plausible um even though you know it's just crazy crap that we make up what was the best part of working on the handbooks uh, <laughs> well, I worked at the very end. I worked on the three-ring binder okay. versions in the 90s. And the three-ring binder was kind of a... It was it was an idea that was too clever for its own good mm -hmm. because the, you know, the problem with the handbook was always that you had to update it. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was you have the three-ring binder and if something new happens or if somebody gets a new costume or whatever, you just insert yeah. it in. Uh, and that's great. But again, the, the, the downside was one... You know, it got so quantified, uh, and part of it was one of the things that they found, and one of the things that was definitely the case when I came into Marvel in 89, was that while the handbook was a, a super popular uh, and super, super financially successful series, what they really used it for was in-house reference. Right. Like everybody had a set of the, of the trade paperbacks, mm -hmm. uh, and it was used everywhere. And so the three-ring binder version kind of took that further. Mm. That Mark had printed up, and there was a mountain of them. Um, you know, uh, uh, boards that had three views of different body types. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, they got one artist, Keith Pollard, to draw everyone. The idea was to eliminate style completely mm -hmm. so that you had... And it was a turnaround so that you could see the characters front, side, and back, and even... The way the hands are posed, you're seeing the front of one hand and the back of the other. Yeah, so you could so you could see every detail of the costume, uh, so whether you needed that to draw as reference in an issue, or whether you needed that because you were going to make a PVC figure or a sculpture or whatever. Um, and that side of things kind of meant that part of the interest and the fun of the handbook was you got a variety of artists drawing all the characters yeah, in these course. big cool shots, and they looked good yeah. and here again uh, Keith did exactly what he was asked to do which yeah. is do you know like uh, usual suspects line up mm -hmm. mug shots of all the characters but consequently you go through 20 of them and they get tedious you go through a hundred of them mm -hmm. and you want to kill yourself <laughs> like it's just uh, you've eliminated any any real character from them and again in terms of the back, now you really were limited to one page because mm -hmm. Spider-Man's on a single board. Mm -hmm. And all the information you're going to get about Spider-Man is going to fit on that one page right. because that's all the space you have. So it was, it was one of these ideas that you know, sounded good in principle, mm -hmm. but in execution was kind of limited. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but it was still, you know, it was still enjoyable to uh, to do. My end of things was much more nuts and bolts mm-hmm. than it was, uh, you know, specifics. Um, I did end up writing uh, a lot of the text pages, mm-hmm. and those were just like on the inside. I think it was the inside front cover because there was like a cover sheet on the on the sort of uh, attached three ring things. Because the idea was you'd get it, you'd tear the the book apart and you'd put it into the binders mm-hmm. um so on the back of the front page thing you know they would do we would do a lot of errata uh, mm-hmm. and updates and and some reader mail and such and you know mark was definitely a proponent that everybody that did stuff here should be writing letters pages and writing uh promo stuff so i ended up doing all of that yeah. um and it was all done pretty much last minute and it was all done in one draft with no editing right. exactly the way i do it today Good training i was gonna say <laughs> perfectly prepared you for, for today um but you know i i i knew a lot of stuff mm-hmm. uh, and it also you know it also makes it crystal clear to me that you know there are a lot of people a lot of fans who feel like uh you know, Marvel's continuity is a mess today, and everything is contradictory. And, and it's not like they're wrong, hmm. but it's not like it was really that good yeah, <laughs> then, be. because there were there were entries where Mark and I would sit down and just try and go figure out like, how the heck do we reckon this story doesn't make any sense? It doesn't fit. It that character's dead. That character's somebody else now. That, mm-hmm. and you would just. You would do whatever you did to go, you know, even even just saying it is unknown how this happens mm-hmm. and, and, and away you would go. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it means that I have a much better appreciation for the fact that uh, the good old days were really not that different <laughs> from the bad old days of today. <laughs> Talking about Mark the Writer a little bit, you can confirm or deny me, but did Mark write Captain America longer than anyone else? Yes. Okay, so he far and away. Uh, yeah, he wrote it for 11 years wow. straight. Uh, and nobody else, at least in terms of, of tenure. Yeah. It may be that there's somebody else who did more individual sure, issues. Story. Although even that, you know, again, Ed doesn't quite get there. Ed Brubaker. Baker. It's tough to top. And Ed's the, to Ed's the closest in recent memory, I think. What was it about Captain America that you wanted to stick with the character for that long, over a decade of telling stories? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Mm-hmm. You know, one when he when he got it, I don't think it was a book that a lot of people were clamoring to write. Right. Uh, and part of that was that you know in the you know in the advent of the Reagan '80s, I think you know as has happened a lot of times over the years, Captain America was sort of seen as out of step and yeah. uh, you know a little a little stodgy. Um, but you know there are a lot of a lot of elements to the basic concept of Captain America that are very similar to the DC characters, sure. or the type of DC characters that Mark loved, and right. so he's the most DC of the Marvel characters. Yeah, I, so I think he he certainly clicked into into that, mm-hmm. uh, and you know he wrote it for a, a long while, and part of that was just he was there, he was doing it, nobody was saying anything, the mm-hmm. books were all selling, that was a period, that was a, an era where everything sold really well, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, from the point that he started up into the end of the 80s and going into the 90s, you know, we were in a huge boom period, mm-hmm. and it wasn't really until things started to bust that he came off, and there was no need or reason for him to come off up before then. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and he was always gonna be writing something, um, and again, I don't know how many people necessarily were clamoring to write Captain America, 
also, for at least part of that period, he was the executive editor. I don't know that there were many people who were clamoring to take the book away from the executive editor, right. who were just, you know, a freelance uh, talent. You know, that, that was maybe a dangerous thing. Yeah. Not that Mark would have done anything about it, but, you know, the, the feeling was like, oh, my, politically, that's not necessarily mm-hmm. your best your best play. Try to take that guy's book. Right. Maybe, maybe, you know, think about a book that's not being written by uh, an executive with a company. Yeah. Mark did 11 years on Captain America, but he always seemed to do pretty, like, long runs. He liked to do complete runs. He mm-hmm. stuck around on books. I'm thinking of, like, Quasar, DP7, stuff like that. Yeah, well, uh, again, that was an era where most people did. Yeah, I mean, you look, at, you look at other, you know, Cap is noteworthy because it was it was a super long run, 11 years. Yes. You know, Quasar is 60 issues, which is a really good run. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, I would bet that Anne Decenti did 60 issues of Daredevil. Sure. Um, you know, and as people of that era, certainly uh, Louise Simonson did 60 issues of X Factor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people just did that in those days. You got on the book and you went as long as as long as things were going well, and uh, you know, either you ran out of, of interest in story or other opportunities came up, or the book was cratering and maybe they would make a change, or maybe your editor would switch and the new editor would want to do something different or whatever. So, um, yeah, Mark was there, and Mark was consistent in being there on all the things that he did. You know, he wrote, whatever, 32 issues of, of DP7. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, 32 is the number of all the <laughs> all the mm-hmm. universe books, pretty right. much, because uh, they all lasted that long. Right. It's just that he wrote all of them, he and Paul Ryan. Right. We talked about Mark's affection for the DC characters, mm-hmm. and obviously that came to bear in a very big way in Squadron Supreme, sure. which is kind of seen as his opus. Um, what was it about Squadron Supreme that, because that's a book that could very easily say, like, we're just doing a Marvel take on the DC characters, it could be very hokey, mm-hmm. very gimmicky, but it's one of my favorite comics of sure, all time, sure. and it's hugely influential. Sure. Was, was a lot of that on Mark? Did he have just these big ideas that he really wanted to Oh, yeah, and again, there were big ideas that that to some degree revolved around the DC characters, but weren't necessarily exclusive to them. Mm -hmm. You know, what Squadron Supreme is really about is is a big idea, which is if you have superheroes... You know, most superheroes, just because of the nature of serial fiction, their job is to maintain the status quo. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's Superman or Spider-Man or Captain America or Batman, they're going out, they're catching the bad guys, they're re- returning the stolen merchandise, you know, they're, they're making sure people don't knock down the buildings, but they're not necessarily affecting any sort of larger sense of permanent change to the world mm-hmm. towards the good uh, and that was the, and you know the reason is because you always have to do a comic next month if you yeah. get rid of all crime it's tough to do a superhero comic yeah. the next month that's not them all playing cards for 20 pages uh, and so uh, you know in the in the confines of squadron supreme mark got to examine and investigate that idea. He had a setup from the previous squadron stories where their earth was destroyed and devastated and screwed up, mm-hmm. um, where he could bring them in and sort of task them with the idea that they're gonna they're gonna dedicate themselves to a year for uh, eradicating crime and war and famine and poverty and you know all the big social ills, and then 
what does that mean? Like, it's very easy. It's very easy to say these things, and they're not very easy to do. And these situations are all a little more morally gray than it might seem on the surface. Uh, and then you know, examine the different characters and push and pull them against these questions. How far will they go? What will they do? Where will they break? Um, you know, how, how good can all of them be uh, and what is the end result of all of this? And that's really what that series, beyond the, the DC pastiche of it all, mm-hmm. what that series is all about. And you could have done that with other characters. You could have done that with New Universe characters. Or you could have done it with another flight of characters. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it's the DC characters meant, you know, all of Mark's love for the DC archetypes could be and all the ideas he might have had for those characters could be channeled and funneled into that project as well Uh, and Squadron started coming out and people forget this because they weren't there at the time and weren't reading the books that started coming out during the period where the Justice League was the Justice League of Detroit Mm -hmm. and the lineup was you know Vibe and Gypsy and Steel and Aquaman was the big gun hitter so you know and and that was you know the you know jerry conway at the time and dc at the time trying to capitalize on teen titans uh and not really you know kind of throwing away the stuff about justice league that people uh really responded to and so in that era at least at that moment it was more a justice league comic than the justice league comic was uh, and people responded to to that as well yeah so we talked about Mark as a fan. We talked about Mark as a writer, even as an artist. He was the executive editor, like you said. He had your job. What did he? Well, yeah, he had a job that was <laughs> that had, that was similar to mine, right. in that it had the same title, but it was a different job. Well, how was it different? And what did he bring to the table? Well, it's a different. Uh, it was a different era. Sure. <laughs> uh, it was. A, it's a different. You know, it's the same company, but it was a completely different company, and a completely mm-hmm. different thing. You know, the 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 the, the needs and the demands of the, the, the organization and the marketplace and everything you know, were, are completely different now than they, they were then. But you know what Mark brought, and this is the intangible thing, and it is so impossible to describe this. This is why, I've, again, I put a couple of years ago uh, a handful of videos up on YouTube mm-hmm. of different things that I had access to because it's very difficult to describe what Marvel was like and what Mark's Marvel in particular was like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, uh, Mark had two sides to the coin that was him. You know, he was very serious about silly stuff. And by silly stuff, I mean all the, the superheroic fiction and nonsense that we do, which is ultimately very silly. And he took almost a scholar's approach to that. And he was very serious... He was very silly about serious stuff, um, which meant that uh, you know he was a fan of Three Stooges shorts and mm-hmm. and uh, uh, you know ridiculous comedy and pratfalls and practical jokes and he would do all of that, you know to some degree, uh, his Marvel career was one big performance art piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, things, events would just materialize, would just happen. Um, he hosted and, and emceed and oversaw all the various Marvel holiday parties, mm-hmm. which he and Tom DeFalco would pay for out of their own pocket. Nobody knew that. <laughs> Everybody assumed that was, Marvel was paying for this, but mm-hmm. anybody that really stopped and thought about Marvel would realize, oh, no, no, Marvel's not paying for it. It's, it's, it's these two guys. Um, 
and he was the he was the ringleader. He was the 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 master of ceremonies, and he was the 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 puckish, uh, 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 you know, emperor of fun. Uh, you know, the closest I can get to kind of conveying it is he was like Jim Henson. Hmm. You know, he was so enmeshed in the center of Marvel and the spirit of Marvel that when you would read the old bullpen bulletins or stand soapbox and, you know, you thought, like, you imagine what the Marvel bullpen was like. And in reality, in those days, it was an office not a very big one with little cubicles and Stan and three other guys frantically trying to get books out. And all of that was just a fantasy that Stan had created, except for Mark. Mark was exactly that. Uh, and the only one who was exactly that. Uh, you know, Mark came out of those pages as an individual, and Mark lived the job up here and made the job up here work for everybody else on those terms mm. um, you know again I can tell specific stories uh, but just in general that's you know that was the that was the vibe and I, you know, I, I literally cannot convey it you have to see it you have to experience it uh, for yourself mm-hmm. um, there's nothing like it and there has been nothing like it mm. uh, since you know 20 years ago it just doesn't exist anymore last question then what is Mark's legacy <laughs> Um, again, as time goes on, that gets harder to answer because, you know, like so many, the the people that actually remember him, uh, both in the industry as a whole and then just up here, uh, get smaller and smaller. You know, I think we're down to maybe three people in the building now who have any firsthand experience with Mark Grunwald, you know, and who have no idea whose uh, plaque that is in my office. Because um, uh, you know, after he passed, there was a you know a plaque done for Mark, and we moved offices about three times since then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at a certain point, rather than it being thrown away, I I took it, I inherited it. It's yeah. in my office. Um, you know, people just don't remember, and a lot of his uh, even uh, written material has not been collected until recent years mm-hmm. yeah, we're starting now to get relatively deep into his Captain Americas with different collections of the Captain or Streets of Poison or the last epic collection the name of which completely eludes me <laughs> um, you know but so there's whole swaths of you know what he did that are just kind of you know gone to a modern day reader he just hasn't been around in 20 years so mm-hmm. nobody you know, but people will remember about him probably mostly is you know the writing work and or the handbook i think the handbook more than anything sure. is going to be the thing that people remember him for right. um but that's you know kind of in the field or in in the <coughs> in the in the hobby you know in internally in the world of comics uh you know he's he really is remembered as being the 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 spirit and the heart of marvel <laughs> and to a whole generation of people like marvel yeah. is has been a zombie ever since uh, he passed. Yeah. I mean, I, my memory of him is I remember being the, bull, the bullpen bulletin's page of cartoons with him and DeFalco. Yep. And that was how I knew Mark. And, you know, definitely all those things that you said. Yep. Well, Tom, thank you so much for coming on, for talking about Mark Greenwald with us. Sure. Uh, I know it's something, like you said, you post this stuff on YouTube and 
to to share uh, his 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 stuff. So it was cool to. Well, this is this is this is twenty years. So yeah. you know, it's it's good that somebody's still talking about him and, yep. and all this stuff. We will, and we'll be doing it all week on Marvel.com. We thank Tom for joining us, and we thank you guys for listening. This is Marvel, your universe. <laughs>